do you teach a little boy to be a boy? Michael C. Reichert says, maybe we're asking the wrong question. Welcome. I'm Tracy, the host of the Essential Stepmom podcast, your source for information and inspiration about the womanly art of raising someone else's kids. There's a lot of material here for the dads too, because, well, because nobody talks to them about this stuff much, and it's about time that changed. There's nothing about making a step family work that comes naturally. It happens as a result of effort and actual skills that you learn and practice, you know, like tennis or chess. My approach to all of this is a bit, well, unconventional. I like to live outside the box, and if that describes you too, I think we're going to be friends. Let me hear from you. My super private mailbox is info at essentialstepmom.com and I'm always up for a chat. Let me welcome you once again. Thank you so much for being here. I'm glad to be with you, Tracy, and glad to talk to your stepdads, I think, right? No, it's to dads. We're talking to dads. <laughs> okay, um, good. Who are married to the stepmoms. <laughs> Uh, who are the listeners um, and very often the the ladies listen to a podcast and say you have to hear this because this was so great and I just know that this is one of those things that that these guys will be really interested in because well I think all parents are interested or they should be in connecting better with their kids and um you know, I can say from my own personal experience, I've raised a girl. I, I just have one child and I had a daughter. And years later, when I got to have a stepson in my house, I couldn't believe how different the boy energy was. Um, it was a pleasure. I mean, it, he was a great kid and I loved having him around, but, but it was really, really different to have like boy hormones around than girl ones. Yeah, you know, you can you can see where John Gray came up with the notion that uh, <laughs> men are, you know, women are from Venus and men are from Mars. It's yeah. so radically divergent. But you know, I, I I'm I'm of the view that we make that difference. We amplify whatever whatever biological differences there might be, hormonal differences there might be. We amplify those, in uh, uh, dramatically from the moment a child is identified as male or female at birth yeah and that amplification is not you know it it, it doesn't favor either uh, either either sex um but my work has been really focused on uh how it it actually violates boys fundamental human natures and causes a host of difficulties you know you you probably noticed in the book that you read that um I, I say that, you know, among the different uh, routine losses and casualties of boyhood, males predominate on the 15 leading causes of premature mortality. Wow. That's not hormonal. No. Um, there's a whole no. uh, way that we uh, treat boys and, 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 you know, train boys to regard themselves that, that leads to you know, higher rates of risk-taking and accidents and suicides. Oh. Um, you know, and the, and the uh, I'm sorry, I'm going on. <laughs> no, please. 
I, I do go on. Um, but you know, it, it, one of the interesting bits of research that confirms my perspective that uh, experience trumps biology in the, you know, in the in terms of the outcomes of boyhood. We find that uh, research uh, that that uh, uh, follows um, groups of 19 to 29 year olds and uh, correlates, you know, the degree to which they conform to traditional masculine norms correlates that finding with other significant outcomes, including uh, uh, having suicidal thoughts. And we find that the more the males identify with those traditional norms, the more they are in the, what we call the man box. I was gonna ask you to talk about the man box. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm happy to. The more that, the more that those males are, are, are confined by a set of traditional norms that, that essentially say, this is how you have to behave in order to be regarded as a male, the more those young men conform to those norms, the more unhappy they are. Wow. The higher the rates of depression, the higher the rates of anxiety, the more they're likely to both bully and be bullied, the more likely they are to harass sexually, and the more likely they are to have suicidal thoughts. Wow, wow. We're not, we don't live well in a confined environment. No, and it, it's, it starts so early. I think you have a story in your book about uh, experiments that were done sort of handing a tiny baby to a caregiver yeah, for a yeah. moment or two and how, how a caregiver will treat a baby if they think it's a, a boy or a girl. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. You know, a very, very well-known uh, U.S. psychologist, William Pollack, um, uh, talks about the quote-unquote traumatic abrogation of boys holding environments which is fancy clinical language for essentially the abandonment of boys. Oh, wow. Um, you know we communicate to both fathers and mothers that the important work of raising a boy is to teach him how to be a quote-unquote boy mm. and the, the uh, researchers that have studied becoming a boy uh, find that um, there's a host of, of uh, uh, challenges that result from that training. A friend of mine, a wonderful psychologist at Stanford University, uh, Judy Chu, um, wrote her doctoral dissertation on a two-year immersion study uh, with a group of four-year-old boys at a school outside of Boston. Oh, wow. She followed those boys for two years, a fly on the wall, interviewing the boys, um, interviewing their parents, their teachers, and just observing them. And what she, what she wrote about, what she found uh, was this very, very sobering outcome that from the time that they were four years old, when they were direct, they were authentic, they were articulate, they were emotionally um, present, from that point at age four to age six, yeah. they, they changed. And they changed in dramatic ways, unhappy ways, um, compromising with the ma masculine norms that, yeah. that were communicated to them from everybody, from their that, teachers. Yeah. That really resonates with me and with my experience of just boys that have been in my 
in my family, in my practice as a natural health practitioner, uh, that's a, such a tender time between four and six. Yeah, you know, that's what the psychologist Carol Gilligan uh, uh, has been talking about for decades, that the crisis uh, that happens in male development happens early, where for girls, it's more likely to happen in, in, in early adolescence. Yes. For boys, and this was really the Judy Chu was Carol Gilligan's student and set out. Okay. She set out to study this, you know, that age. And what she found was, uh, in her words, they traveled from being present to pretending yeah. by, by way of posturing. They learned the rules for how to present themselves as males at such a tender age. Wow. And, and um, you know, the cost of it was that they became less exuberant, she wrote, um, less authentic, more given to kind of posing. You know, they're, they're, the way they dressed, the way they talked, the toys they played with, who they played with, all of that changed over the course of those two years. Wow. Wow. So maybe you can answer this question. How, is there a way that boys typically ask for affection? Um, you know, <laughs> I have a very vivid uh, uh, living um, uh, uh, example in, in my family. I have a four-year-old grandson, mm. and I've been I've been I've been with him essentially for you know minutes after he was born, and so in, it, his birth coincided with my beginning to write the book that that you read, How to Raise a Boy. So I think I kind of came to the relationship with him with really, really wide open eyes, paying a lot of attention to what he might teach me. And, you know, uh, uh, Tracy, the thing that, that was so overwhelmingly evident was how uh, this human being, this fresh new human child um, had, you know, represented an expertise mm -hmm. in claiming affection, claiming connection. Yeah. Um, you know, when I would hold him initially, his eyes, these wide open, big blue eyes would just almost fathom me. You know, they would take, they would take me in. They would, they would, they would absorb me, you know, just trying to, trying to sense who is this person, you know? And then a little, little, a few months later, when he began to smile, when he would see me, a smile of recognition, I felt myself being seized and brought in. Yeah. When he, a few months later, began to be able to walk um, and I would come to their home to visit for dinner, uh, he would come running out of nowhere and jump into my arms, yeah. um, you know, and just hug me and hold me. And the same, the same observation about myself, I was being claimed. Yeah. I was his and, and he was making sure I knew, <laughs> you know, and that, that any, any resistance I might have or any confusion I might have was going to be completely, you know, steamrollered by this uh, completely uh, uh, enthusiastic expert in building connection. So to your question about, you know, how do boys seek affection? When I, they're older, mostly, because I think kids yeah. up to four or five are pretty pretty open 
about yeah. asking for what they need and being affectionate or clingy or physical. And then it starts to change somehow. Well, it changes. So I was telling you that story to make yeah. the point that boys and girls begin with the same fundamental mm. human equipment. You know, um, um, you know, one of the uh, authors of a book that I cite in my book uh, argues that we are we are wired to connect. Um, you know, our yeah. brain structures have we've evolved as creatures to prioritize relational uh, uh, um, uh, uh, moments in experience. So, you know, boys and girls begin with that same equipment. And, and what we think is that that represents our fundamental human natures. Those natures don't change with the advent of puberty. Mm. Those natures remain the same. What's different is we bifurcate, you know, we dichotomize. Yeah. We say Split. boys are like this and girls are like this. What we say about boys is that they are active, they are energetic, they are belligerent, they are aggressive. Um, to the point where I think that, that, you know, we communicate those messages so completely and so powerfully that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. In my, in my educational research, you know, we, we studied the phenomenon of boys, the historic phenomenon of boys underachievement in school. Yeah. And we went about it by studying what was working in schools, 18 schools, including schools in Canada, outside of Toronto, um, schools in England, South Africa, uh, uh, US, uh, Australia, New Zealand. And um, we asked teachers and boys, a thousand uh, teachers of grades six through 12 and uh, 1500 boys, we asked, what's working mm. and the the adolescent males <clears throat> and their teachers uh, told us stories lots and lots of overlaps in these narratives and we were able to deduce several overarching themes mm -hmm. but the third theme the one that we were totally unprepared for came not from the teachers at all and the two of us researchers, between us, we had 50 years of experience working with boys in schools. We were completely unprepared for how clearly the adolescent boys said, what matters to us, what enables us to learn is the quality of our connection with our teachers and coaches. Yeah, you'd think it would be obvious and it you just isn't. But you know, we're talking, we're talking a thousand teachers that are in the trenches with their, with their students, you know, year after year after year. And still all of us were befogged by stereotypes about boys as being a-relational, non-relational. We, we didn't, you know, we thought boys are more independent. Boys don't need relationship. Boys are gonna do their own thing. And in fact, just the opposite is true. What's make or break for a boy in a classroom or on an athletic team is the quality of the connection that they feel with the teacher or coach. And I, I think that it's clear that that's the same is true in the family. And well, I know that there was a YMCA study of, I don't know, maybe it's more than 20 years ago now, where when, when adolescents were asked uh, anonymously to say what they would, what they wished they had more of in their life, it wasn't more autonomy, 
it wasn't more, you know, stuff. It was more time with their parents. And not, not just, and, and time, but, but connection. Time, but yeah, but, but, you know, to actually experience your parent paying attention to you, yes. noticing who you are. You know, I give a lot of talks to parents and, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I end up talking about strategies to actually enhance connection. And I begin with the most basic strategy, which is what I call deep listening. Yes. And I begin by asking the audience, you know, okay, so how many minutes today did you spend actually listening to your son? I don't mean schlepping them here or there, organizing them, scolding them, you know, directing them hurrying them up or slowing them down, feeding them or whatever. Yeah. I mean, actually allowing your mind to still and to focus your attention on your son and actually try to find in your heart the place where you were delighted in him so that he can actually see you in your eyes, grasping him and not just grasping him, but actually registering that he's a delight in your life, that you're not worried about him, irritated by him, put out by him. Yeah. You know, that those things might be true situationally, <laughs> but the more basic reality is this boy makes me happy. Mm. And I, I, you know, what I find when I ask that question is that, uh, you know, there's a lot of sheepish looks and, and, and you know, <laughs> some, measure, some measure of disappointment and shame. And the truth is that most of us in our very, very busy lives, don't carve out time to do just that, to actually focus our attention on our sons and allow our worries or our irritations to kind of recede and just be with them in that way. What a great idea. I noticed with, with pleasure that you refer to um, special time and Patty Whiffler's work. And that's something that's so, important to me and the, uh, the work that I do with parents and families, just say a little bit about um, how you, what you think about that stuff, how you apply it in your work. Do you know, do you know Patty's work? Handy I do. Work? Yeah. Well, Patty's an old dear friend. We go back uh, decades. Oh, how wonderful. And in fact, when I was raising my son, Patty was really helpful to me in grasping, you know, helping me unlearn sort of biases that I had and, 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 and noticed what was most, most important. So, you know, Patty and, and, and the folks that she worked with uh, going back a long time ago, um, believe that we, what we don't need is more command and control parenting. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I say that in, in the context of raising boys because I think that many folks believe that you have to be heavy-handed and dominate boys. You know, you have to provide heavy doses of structure and direction, or the boy is is likely to kind of test limits, act out, and go crazy. And you know, I, as 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 you probably know from reading the book, I will talk about setting limits with boys. Yeah. But it's a very different model from Patty's work about how to set limits and what the point of the limit is. And the, the command and control notion, actually, I think, um, you know, misrepresents uh, the point, which isn't to 
force boys to conform to family uh, uh, schedules or family norms. The point is to actually help the boy notice that who he is um, is good, mm-hmm. worthy of attention and uh, uh, worthy of my time. I'm gonna spend time with my four-year-old grandson today. I'm gonna pick him up at school. It's several blocks from my house, I'm really lucky. And we, we have a couple of hours set aside. And you know what we will do, it, we will walk home. It's cold here today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would probably prefer to ride, but you know, he, what, what he'll want to do uh, is, is meander home. <laughs> You know, stopping at this construction site or looking at this park or going with a friend over here. And, and what I'm trying to do is to let him know that, that, that I love being with him, that he is that valuable human being uh, that I'm willing to carve out time and follow his lead and go wherever he goes. And what I'm hoping comes of that is that he grows a strong sense of self you know, his yeah. sense of self is confirmed by, uh, by my willingness to set aside whatever I want to do in order to communicate to him that his mind, his desires matter to me. And, you know, if he has a strong sense of self, going back to Carol Gilligan's work, he's in a better position to resist the cultural norms that would pull him away from connection and pull him toward more traditional norms that are actually not gonna be very healthy for him. Yeah. He'll be able to say to that peer group, no, I don't wanna do that. I'm not that yeah. kind of, I'm this kind of person. And that's what we want. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I, it's, I think every parent is anxious to help their kid learn how to resist those you know, unhealthy peer pressures, but then we don't, um, we don't act in a way to move them along that road towards that, uh, towards that outcome. Yeah, I, think, I think many, you know, both educators where, I, where I, I spend a portion of my career and parents, you know, think that the thing that will do the trick is to tell boys, no, don't do this, don't do this. And the problem is that, you know, that, that by the time a boy hits 14, 15, 16 years old, if that boy is vulnerable to feelings of insecurity, uh, you know, the, the risk of not being accepted by his peer group can be overwhelming. And that boy is gonna be vulnerable to being seduced or pressured into yeah. conformity. And, you know, he'll feel a need to prove his masculine bona fides, you know, by acting, acting in a way that's, even if it's not true to who he is or what mm-hmm. he believes, and so much of my work in my clinical setting is to help boys, you know, help boys first remember who they are, what matters to them, and then help them strengthen that connection to themselves, often by working with them in the context of their family relationships um, so that their parents understand that their job is a long game, not a short game. It's about it's about cultivating their son's ability to chart his own course, to be his own man. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, um, I mean, my work is helping to 
reconnect parents to that joy of parenting, to that pleasure and, and fulfillment of parenting, to do that. And we get so caught up in the in the day-to-day -day of it, as you said before, we can be really um, myopic or something. You know, it's hard to remember the long game and the big picture and why you're in this. What is it that you want to, what do you want to feel about your your time as a parent? Yeah, Tracy, that's wonderful work and it's certainly work that, that uh, matters to me, matches my own clinical orientation. The, um, yeah, you know, myopic, I, yeah, for sure, in the in the press of the moment. Yes. But more fundamentally, I think we wind up in this place more with boys than with girls because of of gender stereotyping. Mm -hmm. You know, and what I see in in school classrooms. I mean, so back to that study. You know, uh, a thousand teachers in the trenches with boys for generate for you know long long time. Yeah. And, and still, you know, teachers didn't name the connection as being the make or break feature mm -hmm. of, their, of their pedagogy. And when I began to explore in subsequent you know, follow-up focus groups, what was going on, what I, what I heard was boys dramatize their, their emotions in their behavior and they tend to elicit more negative reactions both parents and educators and coaches. Um, and those negative reactions lead parents, for example, or teachers to believe that they have to come down on boys with a heavier hand. Mm. So we know, for example, studies of families that show that boys receive by far uh, stronger, uh, more punishing discipline, mm. um, often more physical discipline. Mm. And you know that what's going on with the parents there is that we're, re we're we're reacting. Either we're reacting out of anger or we're reacting out of fear. You know, we we don't think that the boy can be trusted to find his own mm. healthy path. Yeah, that's for sure. <clears throat> well, you know, another problem. You know, I, I, another underlying problem going to your work of, with mothers and fathers is that I think many of us adults come to parenting, we don't have a clean slate here. Right. We've all gotten, we, we've all had difficult experiences with other, with men, adult men in our lives. Maybe it was our fathers, maybe it was a teacher, maybe it was some uh, really uh, traumatizing experience with a male, yeah. experience of violence or, or whatnot. And, you know, I, I used to, I've done training with, with uh, therapists and clinicians, um, you know, working with them, for example, to engage fathers in therapy, mm -hmm. family therapy. And, you know, the starting point of those trainings I've, I've, I've come to discover needs to be helping the therapists themselves uh, identify the negative, what we therapists call counter-transference that we bring to our efforts to help our dads. Yeah. You know, if we believe that these dads are, you know, all of these negative things, they're more prone to anger or they're more prone to abuse or they're more prone to be absent or to be disengaged. You know, if that's our starting point based on our own experience and our biases, we're naturally not going to be very good at 
you know, bringing out the best in those dads. Absolutely. I, I'm just thinking about, about the, the dads that I work with and their spouses who I work with and um, a, applying all that you've said now to understanding um, how the, the dad now can be living out the effects of the, all of this conditioning and, you know, that he, he, he's been conditioned to approach the world in a certain way or his emotional relationships or his connections with his kids or whatever. And it's hard work to, to rewrite those, you know, habits and remake those neural pathways and all that, all of the connection that was potentially yep. missing, all the sensitivity in these guys that is, has no, um, uh, you know, sort of theater of, of expression that they can allow themselves. Yeah, um, hard work. <laughs> Let's talk about yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, Dan Siegel and Mary Hartzell in their book, Parenting from the Inside Out, mm -hmm. uh, talk about the high road and the low road. Yeah. And I, I think it's important to acknowledge that just as you've said, you know, for many of us, um, when we get with a child, if we want to avoid merely reproducing from one generation's bad experience to the next, yeah, yeah. just if we want to avoid passing along the mistakes of the previous generation, we actually have to be willing to look at where we get uh, um, uh, kicked out of our forebrain <laughs> into our more basic reptilian brain. Yeah you know, upset we feel, ways that we start to, you know, start to worry about our sons and we come from a place of worry or anxiety or fear or insecurity, or we come at them from a standpoint of unrecognized traumatic reenactment. Yeah. You know, when we come from those, those more basic uh, uh, parts of our brain, we're not really being with our sons at all we're projecting onto this canvas of our yeah. boys you know a set of primitive emotions that if we don't process we're just going to reproduce yeah. um so i think you know i think for many many dads um we carry the 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 the, the, the social message you know the social conditioning that it's our jobs to prepare our sons for a fierce, tough, competitive Darwinian world. Yeah. We have to toughen them up. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the research about strength uh, is, is just opposite that. You know, you don't, you don't train a boy to be tough by being uh, harsh towards him. You train him to be tough by helping him hold on to himself. Yeah. So what I say in, in, in my writing is that if we want our sons to hold on to themselves, we have to hold on to them ourselves. So true. So true. I want to ask you a question of um, one of the things that I love the most about your message. And um, I think it's something that applies very specifically to the audience that we're speaking to today of um, divided families, um, parents who live part of the time away from their kids. Yeah. But you say that the role of managing the relationship falls to the adult 
by default. And why does that, it, it feels hard to do for a lot of people. It feels like the kids are managing the relationship. Yeah. Um, tell me how that's especially relevant in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a family where the parents have split up and, and there's a, maybe, maybe a couple of different households with different values. Um, it's relevant because um, the kids come to a moment, sometimes earlier and sometimes later, where they fall victim to uh, a range of family dynamics that make them say, I don't want to see my dad uh -huh. so much, or I don't want to see him at all anymore. And that becomes very hard to manage for the parent who not only just feels rejected and all the emotions that go along with that, but who can't figure out what's my next move. How do I bring yeah. this back? And very often they feel that it's respectful of what the child wants. They want to demonstrate that they, they hear what the kid is saying and they want to respect it. And then um, it, it just uh, creates this, chasm between them that's really hard to turn around so it's like they they feel that maybe they have to or there's a lot of pressure of course from let's say mom in this particular dynamic who is taking advantage of this maybe just a developmental moment where the you know ch children are naturally expressing a desire to separate from their parents in a certain way but that it it creates this situation where the child becomes in a way in control or yeah. the, the, it's a feeling like that no no and i think often unfortunately it, it it does it you know in a in a kind of a a a um tragic way we uh family systems can come to be dominated by their by children uh uh children um being elevated by default to a parent executive yeah. level of yeah. the system or a yeah. parental yeah. level of the system and having way 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 too much control over uh, uh over everything so i i'm yeah and you know in, in nearly 40 years of clinical work as you can imagine i've worked with a lot of families where there has been a divorce or uh you know and and you know even even 20 years after the divorce things are still acrimonious yeah. and bitter and 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 uh dysfunctional um so maybe a, a few conclusions that i've come to from that work mm -hmm. um the first is that uh uh you know i i've learned as a therapist to be very very powerful in in taking hold of both parents and essentially saying, you may have decided that your relationship, your, your intimate relationship wasn't working, wasn't good for you. That's fine. That's probably, that's probably the right thing to have done under the circumstances. But you continue to share our relationship as co-parents and you will until the end of your days. And if you want your children to function successfully you're gonna to have to figure out how to cooperate as co-parents. For the sake of the child, don't put your child in a loyalty conflict where uh, consciously or unconsciously, 
you are essentially communicating to him that he can't have both of you and that he has to choose because that tears him up and it diminishes the resource that he has available to, to strengthen himself and to resist the temptations of the world. Your child, your son, let's say, needs both of you, at least both of you. <laughs> and, and you know your ability to cooperate uh, in, in even the most basic ways means that you have to, you have to communicate to your son that you want him to have an excellent relationship with your with his mother or his father as well as with you you don't have to do more than that and you don't have to go along with everything your 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 uh, uh, parenting partner you know is in favor of but you know when there are real difficult conflicts i recommend you you get with a therapist or a coach mm -hmm. and you put those conflicts out with each other you find the common ground for the sake of your child so that you don't put him in those binds. Um, and, you know. How do you, sorry, I'm curious to know, how do you, um, uh, do you find that you're able to bring both parents on board where one parent is quite happy with the status quo actually, and doesn't, uh, doesn't recognize that there's a problem, doesn't, doesn't see that it's a problem that the child doesn't want to uh, have this relationship right now, that that's okay for them. Yeah, and, and that parent might even believe, you know, that there are good reasons that the child yeah. doesn't have a relationship mm -hmm. that, that align with, say, if it were the mother, align with her experience of the, the yeah, problem. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and you know, there, there's often some legitimacy in, the, in, in those kinds of, of um, beliefs. Um, so, you know, if, if let's take this scenario that played out a bit more, if this mother left the father because the father was, say, emotionally or physically abusive, yeah. um, you know, in her mind, uh, uh, she certainly doesn't want her son exposed to that for all kinds of healthy reasons. Um, and yet what I would argue as a therapist, if I were brought into that family script yeah. is, well, you know, that makes a lot of sense as a starting point, but that's not the end point. And if this man is uh, eager to be a father to your son um, and he's willing to do the work he needs to do to get a hold of his temper, his anger, you know, to overcome whatever conditioning had happened to him so that he can be a good father to your son, can you support that? Yeah. Because your son wants a relationship with his father. He would like his father to be a healthy father. Yeah. But, you know, given the choice between an absent parent and a healthy, warm, attentive father, which way would he choose? Well, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, of course. But that's like the, that's the kind of, I don't know what to say, worst case scenario, the, the, people that I mostly deal with are just finding that this is a, um, a, a tactic, let's say, of um, latching on to the a normal developmental drive, especially as kids move into, you know, farther along in adolescence to, to break away from a parent and uh, 
to for the for the mom in my particular audience to latch on to that and say oh good you don't have to go like you don't have to have this relationship anymore and i i just i love your idea that it it falls to the adult to figure this out to manage this relationship yeah yeah um so that insight about the role of relationship manager falling to the adult actually comes from the educational research we did, where we found that every kind of relationship in a very, very normal way goes through cycles of connection, disconnection, reconnection. Mm, wonderful. That's normal. That's right? wonderful to know. There are times, you know, Tracy, when my relationship with my grandson is stronger and weaker. And, you know, it's, it's my job as the adult, the one with some perspective, some experience theoretically, it's my job to notice when the relationship is in a more disconnected or attenuated state, to notice that and to undertake strategies to deepen the connection. Awesome. Oh, I think I need to spend some time with my grandson because we've been you know, we've been away, this has interfered or that has interfered. And I want to make sure he has a vital, robust sense of my presence in his life. That role of relationship manager uh, falls to teachers in schools because what we believe is that the student is so caught up, so busy trying to do their role of learning mm -hmm. that the professional has to notice the quality of the connection and if there's been a breakdown, sometimes the breakdown is quiet, sometimes the breakdown is noisy, but in either case, it's the teacher's job, the professional job in the context of relational pedagogy to undertake the work of strengthening or rebuilding or repairing the connection. So the same is true of parents. You know, it's natural that your 12 year old stepson is gonna cycle through periods when he's more and less connected to you. It's your job to, to, to observe, you know, to notice. Right now, he seems rather distant from me. I think what I'm gonna do is carve out some special time and make sure on Saturday that we spend a couple of hours just playing video games or whatever he wants to do. Yeah. Um, and you know the whole point there. It's strategic. You know we're simply the, the the point is not the video games or the kicking the soccer ball around or going to the ice. You know the ice hockey uh, rink. The point is that he has a sense of you in his life in an ongoing, generous way that he can remember he's not alone. That you are a resource that he can tap as needed. He may not tap it in that moment of special time, but that's capital in the bank. You've, been, you've made an investment, you've made a deposit. Yeah. And, you know, he will turn to you. That's, the, that's our hope. You know, he will turn to you. He will draw upon that capital when he feels a deficit. Yeah. Well, that's, a, that's a great way of putting it. And I, I just, uh, this whole idea of summoning delight uh, summoning that feeling of delight in your kids. I, I, it's a lovely way of putting it and it's a lovely um, message. You know, many, many parents tend, can, can feel powerless in relation to their adolescent son. Mm. 
you know, so many parents I, I work with in my clinical practice come to me and they say, you know, he just doesn't, you know, he closes the door, he's on video games all the time, or he's on his social media, he's out with his friends, he doesn't seem to, you know, I don't even know who he is anymore, I don't know what he's into. And I always say, that's an outcome. That's not natural to your son, it's certainly not natural to adolescents. There might be a lot of peer pressure you know, bearing down on your son, saying to him, don't be a mama's boy, you know, mm -hmm. hang out with us, you know, we're the fun, we're the fun, we're where the action is. But more fundamentally, what, what human being, what, what boy wouldn't want to be with his mom uh, and experience his mom's delight in him? I mean, that's the sunlight that helps a child grow. Absolutely. And, you know, we're the ones that we, we, we're the ones that radiate that. That's, that's ours to give. So what I say to parents that feel alienated or estranged is, well, you've got something going for you. <laughs> you know, you've got something really basic, yeah. which is that your son needs you. Mm. He may not remember it. He may not know it. There might be barriers in the way of his accessing it, but in, a mo in the most fundamental way, you've got something that he needs. And if you can find a way to deliver it patiently, generously, warmly, over time, um, he will turn towards you the way a plant turns toward light. I, I, I'm confident in it. Oh, me too. I know it. <laughs> please, please tell my listeners where they can find you. Um, well, I have, a, I have a website, Michael C. Reichert. Dot com, and there's a lot of there, there's a lot of my writing, interviews, podcast interviews yeah. there, uh, and uh, uh, there's also a a description of um, talks I give. I come to talk, you know, in these days I come virtually yeah. give talks, and uh, uh, you know my book How to Raise a Boy is available on at random 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 penguin random house penguin, and it's uh, wonderful. And I'm going to put all those links in the show notes so people can find them more easily. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Well, it was fun talking with you. I, I, I hope that that uh, addressed you know, some of the questions your audience would have. Absolutely. Thanks again so much. You're crazy. Okay. Bye. Bye, bye. We say boys are like this and girls are like that. And we communicate those messages so well it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's what my guest Michael Reichert says about how we unconsciously direct the emotional and behavioral development of our sons and daughters. He also reveals the one thing he didn't see coming in his research with thousands of teachers and students about what makes boys learn better. And it surprised the teachers too. Here's my conversation with the author of how to Raise a Boy, The Power of Connection to Build Good Men, Michael C. Reichert. Okay, he got it wrong and said stepdads instead of dads, but we'll give him a pass on that. I want to recommend his lovely book to anyone who wants to think in a new way about creating a generation of dads who don't default to shutting down as a response to tough emotions, who don't have way higher suicide rates when their families fall apart than the moms do, who don't 
fall victim to stress-related disease at such an alarming rate because they hold so much inside. We could stop ourselves from turning those four- to six-year-old boys away from sensitivity toward toughness. And what will the world look like when men allow themselves to cry without shame? I'll link to where you can find How to Raise a Boy, The Power of Connection to Build Good Men in the show notes. Thanks for listening to this episode. I'll be back next week with a new season of the Essential Stepmom podcast. Just because I can start a new season anytime I feel like it. And it's the middle of February, so I say we need a new season right about now. Next week, you'll hear from psychotherapist Mary T. Kelly. She's a regular contributor to HuffPost and Stepmom Magazine, and she's been treating step family members in every configuration for the last 18 years. And does she have a story to tell? Before I sign off, I want to remind you that I do have some coaching spots available, but most of them are reserved for the dads because I think they need help too to come to grips with their guilt about not giving their kids the family experience they wanted them to have, or their fears about losing their kids to post-divorce conflict. If your partner wishes he knew how to feel good about holding limits, or feels overwhelmed by trying to make everyone happy, or just needs to find the zone where he can finally feel like the father he wants to be, give me a shout. These are all normal situations and working them out can be easier than you think. Go to bit.ly slash call Tracy and set an appointment for a phone call. No strings attached. I'll describe my coaching program and you can see if it feels like a good fit. That's bit.ly slash call Tracy. All capital letters, no E in Tracy. I'll put the link in the show notes too. See you next week.